And uh, so we're, we're back to our series on the parables. And uh, we're in Luke chapter 12, uh, the parable of the rich fool. I'm going to read verses 13 to 21. Follow along with me. Hear God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, this is Jesus, he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Amen. Let me open this in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless this your word to us. Open our eyes that we might see uh, the truth of, of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You know, Princeton is a very weird place. And there's a specific category of conversations I have at Princeton, that uh, you just don't have, like, you know, normal college students, you should know, are, like, poor, broken in debt, right? Your average college student is broken in debt. They're in debt because they're going to college, and the broke is, you know, how, why would they have any money? But anyway, me, since I do ministry at Princeton, like, I have these weird conversations with people who are like, I got paid so much last summer, I had more money than I know what to do with. I got paid so much, I have more money than I know what to do with. And, um, you know, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. PCF runs on donations, friends. www.pcfprinceton.org. It's like the right-hand side, there's a giving tab. Your money's good. But, no, that's not a specific thing. That's not only what I say. But I'm like, seriously, I've done this specific pitch. To many people over the years. And it's this, like, well, you should save for retirement. Open an IRA account. How many of you know what an IRA is? Okay, okay, you've heard. Chris Saladay knows. <laughs> you ask him. Um, open an IRA account. Like, there's a maximum giving limit of, you know, you can contribute $5,500. And that's, like, only, like, you know, two and a half weeks of your summer earnings on whatever um, absurd company is paying you that amount. And, um... So, do I have never succeeded. I don't know why. I keep trying. I'm like, start retirement. Save for retirement when you're young. You know, you're 21. And, like, think it. It'll, like, compound interest. Right? You're smart. Right? Do you wonder how many know what compound interest is? <laughs> right? Learn it. Learn what compound interest is. That's why you should start saving when you're young. Um, it'll grow over time as long as the economy uh, succeeds. But I've never. It's never worked. And, uh, and then I come to this parable. And maybe I'm wrong. Right? Because it's like I'm encouraging people to save for the future. I'm actually right. But we're, uh, that's not the point. <laughs> I'm encouraging people to save for the future. And, that, you know, being young Christians, they just don't believe it. Um, but this, Jesus is, uh, it's very striking in this parable. He's, he's talking about someone who's really good at saving, which is normally what we think of as a really, really good, smart thing. And, uh, but what's the, what's the background of this parable? I mean, the context is Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and some. Some man comes, shouts out, teacher, 
tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This guy is upset. We don't know if he has cause to be upset, if his brother's cheating him, or if he just is trying to cheat his brother. We don't know. But anyway, he wants Jesus to, uh, to, to intervene. And Jesus very provocatively says, man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. Jesus' concern here is not to put himself in the place of the civil magistrate. Rather, he goes to the underlying issue with this man, which is that whether, I mean, whether the man has been you know, cheated or not by his brother in the inheritance, Jesus' concern for him is his heart, namely to take guard, to take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This guy is focused on stuff and money, as we all are. And Jesus is saying, beware, your life does not consist, your worth is not the dollar number attached to your name. It's not whether you're one of those people who somehow manages to earn more money than they they know what to do with, or whether you're one of those people who has no idea how to earn money. (laughs) Um, and is terrified of the prospect. Your worth, your life, does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And so and then in this context, Jesus tells this parable. A parable, again, is a story that Jesus tells to make a point. And here, this parable, we call the parable of the rich fool. And first, I want to talk about the, the fool's foolishness, the rich fool's foolishness. And second, about our foolishness. And third, about God's riches. So first, about uh, the fool's foolishness. So why, why is this, this rich man a fool? Because he's not a fool. Uh, it's, just, it's a subtle kind of foolishness. He's the kind of man people would say is wise and prudent and great. Someone who has big barns. And he's probably, I mean, it's always possible he's exploited his wealth, but probably he's hardworking and successful and responsible. He's skilled at agriculture. His land is producing. I mean, if, for any of you who are farmers, farms... Well, I wouldn't know, but Christian can tell you. Farms don't produce, if you just lay back and do nothing, like you don't get great crops, right? You got to do work on farm. It's not like humanity's precept, right? So like it takes, I'm major, I can say that. It takes, it takes work. And so this man is probably, like, from that perspective, successful. He's good at what he does. He's good at what he's done, and he, he's brought about this great crop. He's the kind of person you'd be like, he's successful, he's a winner. He's the kind of person I want to be like, the kind of person I want you know, my, my child to marry, so on and so forth. Um, he sounds great. So his foolishness is more subtle. First, his foolishness is that he's only thinking about himself. So he gets a bumper crop. I love the fact that he just talks to himself. I don't know if he had friends, right? But he like, we need to redevelop this guy. You know, he just uh, uh, addresses his soul. The word in Greek is psyche. You know, soul. Um, uh, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Uh, he's just thinking about himself. So when the windfall comes in, he has all this uh, tremendous amount of food. His focus isn't like, how can I use this to serve God and others? It's, I need bigger barns. Probably his barns were already big enough to store enough food for him. Chances are. But that's his thought, is first, just about himself. Which is, a, I mean, in many ways an understandable, well, attempting kind of foolishness. Um, but foolishness nonetheless. He's selfish. Second, he doesn't understand himself. For as much as he's focused on himself, he doesn't understand himself. Because he says... His goal is to eat, drink, and be merry. But is that what he's doing? Relax and eat, eat, drink, and be merry? No, he's building bigger barns. 
He thinks that that's what his goal is. Even that is foolishness, because he's just focused on like his body, his urges, and uh, satisfying them. Food, drink, pleasure. But that's not even what he's doing. The man is a barn builder, right up until the day of his death. There's a famous uh, anecdote in um, Plutarch's life that uh, uh, this Greek king called Pyrrhus, that's P-Y-R-R-H-U-S, is that right? Pyrrhus. So King Pyrrhus of Epirus, spelled differently, <laughs> that's part of Albania. Pyrrhus was famous back in the, the uh, fourth uh, century BC. He was a great general. And uh, we know him from the word Pyrrhic victory, so you get a sense of where the sense if you know what that means. But anyway, so Pyrrhus, he was this king, and he was planning to fight the Romans and invade Italy. He lived across the Adriatic Sea, right? He was going to invade Italy and defeat the Romans, who were still small then. And so his friend, Plutarch records this encounter with his friend Canaeus. And Canaeus asked, asked Pyrrhus, so say we defeat the Romans, what then? And Pyrrhus says, we'll conquer all Italy. Italy is rich. And Canaeus is like, okay, so say we conquer all, all Italy. What's next? Pyrrhus is like, Sicily. Pyrrhus later conquered Sicily. Sicily, it's rich. And uh, Pyrrhus is like, okay, so once we've got Sicily, then what? Greece, we'll conquer all of Greece. And Canaeus asked again, get where he's going. What then, after we conquer Greece? And Pyrrhus finally caught on, and he said, we will drink and uh, uh, eat and have some good conversation. That's what Pyrrhus says. And Canaeus then said, well, why can't we do that now? (laughs) Because he was already king of his own country. He didn't need to invade Rome, which was a bad idea. Don't pick a fight with Rome. Anyway, uh, between 500 BC and 500 AD. (laughs) Don't pick a fight with Rome. And Plutarch describes Pyrrhus as being troubled but not converted. Right, troubled but not converted. Because he was troubled by what Canaeus was saying, which is that Pyrrhus, like the rich fool, had an unexamined life. He did not understand. He thought, when pressed, what am I living for? I'm living for the pleasures of this world. But in truth, Pyrrhus was living to conquer. The rich fool was living to build barns, to have more stuff. It wasn't even to enjoy this stuff. He just loved having it. He didn't understand his own heart. Like Pyrrhus, what did Pyrrhus do? He sent Canaeus with 3,000 soldiers to invade Italy. So that's how that story ended. Uh, I mean, yeah, you read the rest of Pyrrhus' life. He was killed in a battle where, like, in a city where the mother of an enemy soldier threw a tile on his head and knocked him out and then someone beheaded him. So anyway, it didn't end well, his love of conquest. And he was famous for Pyrrhic victories. He won battles, but he lost so much. His older son was killed. He lost so many troops that his battles, though they were victories, were like defeats. But that's the, that, that's the rich fool. He doesn't understand himself. And third, he doesn't, doesn't understand his spiritual needs. Because even then, he's addressing his soul. Right? You will have ample goods, eat, drink, and be merry. But the thing is, eat, drink, and be merry is for your, your body and not your soul. I mean, the irony of this, that the man is so focused, he's talking about his soul, but he under, doesn't understand the needs of his soul are more than food. That, in Jesus' words, the measure of his life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So that's his foolishness of the rich man. It's a subtle kind, a kind that people would look at and say he is a winner, he is successful. But at the end of the day, what has he been chasing? Just greed, just amassing stuff. So let's turn my second point 
to our foolishness. So what's our foolishness? Well, first, I think a challenge for college students, especially at Princeton, is to say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I am not greedy for money. Frankly, money doesn't... This is probably the time of life where you have, will have the lowest awareness of money. That's not true. All of, some of you are very keenly aware of money and your lack of it. But in general, um, Princeton students aren't thinking in those terms. You're not thinking like, oh, yeah, I am just so focused on barn building um, or uh, portfolio building. I mean, some of you don't even know what IRAs are, right? It's like you're, you're focused on uh, learning and uh, cultivating the things of the mind and uh, your extracurricular activities, singing and performing. And you have, you're blessed in this way. But here's the thing. So you may think this doesn't apply to me. I'm good. Lord, I'm not greedy like the rich fool. Here's the thing. The fact that we aren't thinking about money, to the extent that you don't, at Princeton, it's because you're living off of Princeton's barns. Princeton, my friends, has really, really big barns. How, how, what's the endowment? 24. It's 24. I think it was like 12 when I came as a student. But anyway, 24 billion. Right? And at Princeton, if you think you're not thinking about money, it's because you have it. That's true in general in life. People who are like, oh, I don't care about money are people who have it. And that's true of you as a Princeton student. There are all these things provided for you. One of the beautiful things about Princeton is, is there is this leveling aspect of the university so intent on providing resources to people, regardless of whether you come from your, your parents were billionaires, which are some of my friends, or your parents were totally broke and not a, you know, a dollar to their name. Um, that's great about Princeton. The thing is, it's going to end. Right? We're either living off of Princeton's barns, its wealth, or we're living off of our parents, um, usually some combination thereof. I'm often actually shocked by that. I still, I still trip up on this. I remember one student, um, like he was spending a lot of money on alcohol. He was struggling with alcohol. But, um, and I, at one point I asked him, he had no job, and I'm like, the alcohol you're buying, how do you pay for it? You know, that it just like this was my, I was like, normally like you need to work a job to fund the habit. But he didn't for some reason. It was just, you have these experiences at Princeton where you're like, where is this disconnect? Where did the dollars come in? I know Princeton's not giving you the money for it. And we just had a credit card. And his parents just paid whatever he charged. It was like magic. Magic money. I'm like, I need to call his parents. Like, you know, look at what your child's charging on their credit card and cut it off. Um, anyway, he got through that. But we, we live in this uh, strange bubble where you think it's not about money. And it's hard once you graduate Princeton that leveling effect that the university provides ends. And there becomes this dramatic bifurcation between people who go and work these uh, crazy, highly paid, very stressful jobs and those who don't. I remember one friend where she was just like, you know, she was looking, we were about four years out of that time, and she was just looking at friends who had tons of money and just did stuff that you can do with money, fancy vacations, nice, expensive possessions. And uh, she was just like, and they have it, and I don't, and it sucks. And she changed jobs to earn a lot more money. It'll hit you. You may think greed isn't hitting you now. It will hit you. Envy will hit you. Because other people will have, your friends will have more money than you. They will have more possessions. It's easy to say, and this is absolutely true, that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. This is a crucial truth that we must lay hold to. 
But it's hard when there's your friend and they have a whole lot more stuff than you. So don't come home. That's part of our foolishness is we don't realize the tendrils, the snares of Princeton's wealth, that it's, a cost, it's habituating us to having the material things we want. And that, that habit, we may not think about money now, but later we'll think, I need those things to be happy. My house isn't as big as my parents' house. I can't be happy. If I don't have as nice vacations as my friends do, I can't be happy. Uh, if, if I don't have uh, uh, the, the latest uh, uh, tools and gadgets, clothes, whatever, I can't be happy. It'll creep in. But second, laying aside money. That's the focus of this parable. But laying aside money and broadening covetousness and what it looks like in our lives. Part of our foolishness, I think, at Princeton is we're, we're like the rich fool and we don't know ourselves. We don't know ourselves. Um, we're like Pyrrhus, the king, and we don't know ourselves. I, I, I so appreciate this. When I interviewed for Princeton as a senior in high school, went over, you're not supposed to do this anymore. I went to her house. It was this lady um, uh, in the town. I went to her house, and she was, she was asking me questions. And it was like, uh, she asked me, why do you want to go to Princeton? She did like what Kinaeus did with Pyrrhus. She was like, why do you want to go to Princeton? Someone tell me, why do you want to go to Princeton? Give me a reason. <laughs> Sorry? It's prestigious. All right, well, why? why? Why go a place where it's prestigious? Okay, why have better opportunities? Okay. You work in campus ministry. Any high school dropout can do that, Jay. <laughs> That's not true, actually. Anyway. <laughs> she just kept asking me. I was a little like... You know, isn't it obvious that, like, if I go to Princeton, my life will be inherently superior to, like, everyone else in the world? Maybe a few Harvard and Yale and Stanford students, maybe. You know? <laughs> but, like, or Oxford and Cambridge, okay. But, like, everyone else in the world, like, I'll be, like, superior. That's, that's what you believe deep down. That's what everyone around you believes, at least. Deep down. Surely this matters. And here's the thing. It's like saving for retirement, like building barns to hold your... You're great. It's a good thing come to Princeton. It's a good thing to enhance your opportunities. But it's a dangerous thing. Like riches, it can be a snare, and you can fall in love with it. You can fall in love with what's a, merely a means to an end, what's merely a tool to steward. It's merely a gift from God to be used for other purposes, his purposes. And you can turn it, turn it instead into an idol into, into a, the, something that controls and binds your life. And so we have this. We don't ask that question at Princeton. Why do you do what you do? There are good reasons if what you're doing, depends what you're doing, if what you're doing is uh, studying, there are good reasons to study. There are good reasons to sing. There are good reasons to perform. There are good reasons to uh, join a club. But there are all sorts of bad reasons. And the hard truth for our foolishness is that so often, like the rich man who was addicted just to owning more stuff, not even to eating, drinking, and being married, just to having more stuff, knowing in his mind that he had more stuff. We are addicted, broadly, I would call it to success. It's that, it's that impulse of, I have achieved. It's a dopamine rush. We're the, is it the mice that press the button? To get, you put the electrode in their brain to simulate their pleasure centers and they do it until they die? Yes. 
Well, we're not stimulating our pleasure centers, I mean, except on Prospect Avenue. But like normally, the stimulation we're going for, it's more high, it's higher, it's more more sophisticated. It's the kind of pleasure centers that people look at and say that's prudent, that's wise, that's a, that's valuable. It's uh, prestige and status and knowledge and ultimately money. Right? It's these things, and we're like the rat pushing the button. And we'd like to think that we're like have a clear vision for how this is. Uh, when you ask people, I mean, my wife, she's a corporate litigator, and the one partner she worked for, uh, I've told this story before, but it's so, it brings this home so, so strikingly. So this partner's earning millions a year. And her husband had a hedge fund that he'd sold for, like, tens of millions. And so someone asked her, like, why do you work? They already had tens of tens and tens of millions of dollars. Why do you work? And because uh, she wasn't happy, work. I mean, she was happy, but it was like because uh, she chose to do it. So in some sense, right? This was voluntary on her part. She was a taskmaster. Just everyone was miserable around her. She just chewed through employees, and she was famous for it. Very good lawyer, but you know, not someone you wanted to work for. And she said, "Why are you working?" It's like so my children never have to. That's like the rich fool saying, I'm, so I can eat, drink, and be married. No, that's not why you're building bigger barns. You're building bigger barns because you want to know more stuff. You're not working as a corporate litigator so your children could never work, will never have to work in their life. That's completely antithetical to everything you believe because you're working even though you don't need to. If you thought it was good for your children to never work, you would stop working now if that was a good idea. But you're an addict to work, and that's us. So often, I think at root. I mean, some of us are procrastinator, lazy addicts to work, and some of us are like really good at addicts to work, right? Uh, and sometimes we vary between the two. But we we're, we're more so often more addicts rather than um, uh, truly doing it for some higher purpose that will end up somewhere. So last, let me talk about God's riches. Because this is Jesus' exhortation. He says in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. His exhortation is that rather we would be rich towards God. Now I want to turn to 1 Timothy 6. And I'm going to read a passage here that talks also about money. And um, you can follow along as I read. Listen, this is 1 Timothy 6, reading from verses 6 to 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain. This is the exhortation, to be content. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pangs. And here's the positive exhortations. But as for you... O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We read verses 11 and 12 again. Man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. what does it mean to be rich towards God? Or what's that goal? Like when someone asks you, like, why do you do these things? What's a good answer? What's a worthwhile answer? And uh, I, I want to illustrate it. I've read First Timothy. I, 
I want to illustrate it with a profound book I read earlier today to my four-year-old daughter. It's called The Little Blue Truck. I want to bring this home. I'm not insulting your intellectual level. I know you're all geniuses. And I'm not going to read it word for word, but I want to explain what it is to be rich towards God. So in the book, there's a little blue truck. And the little blue truck goes along and it says beep. And uh, it says beep to the frog. And the frog says the frog says croak. And uh, it says beep to the to the sheep and to the cow and the pig. And they say ba moon oink back. And it beeps at the chicken. See, it's not just the like tasty animals like the cow and the chicken and the pig are like the useful animals like the horse, but even like you know the uh, frog. It says beep to. It's a friendly truck. And then along comes, here's us. Yellow dump truck. Go for it, Jay. Huh? Go for it. The yellow dump truck is important. It's going places. It has a fancy job. Uh, moving gravel, I guess. So it just zooms through, and uh, the poor animals have to jump out of the way in the, the little blue, friendly little blue truck. But the yellow, like so many of us, the yellow dump truck gets stuck in the mud. And it honks its horn, and no one comes, because no one likes the yellow dump truck. It likes no one. It's too busy thinking of itself. And uh, But the little blue truck takes mercy on the dump truck. and goes to push it out. And brings its friends, the tasty ones and the useful ones, and even the frog. This is why, this is why and the frog's strength, the frog's strength, this is not accurate in real life. Don't get dump trucks out of the mud. Get the dump truck out of the mud. All right? And then the dump truck knows that it should be friends. Okay? All right? They're all happy together. So that's my point. This is what's so beautiful about this book. Right? All creation speaks to the glory of God, even this book. <laughs> the beauty of it is, it's like, the dump truck, it's like, this is us. We're like, oh, what I'm doing is important, so I can ignore other people. I can care only for myself. It's easier to be selfish when you're doing something important. And it ends up in the mud, and the little blue truck doesn't need to help it. The yellow dump truck has done nothing to deserve it, right? Who's the little blue truck? Jesus! Jesus! It's providing undeserved help. This is the riches of God. Because it's one thing to say, we all agree, we're all attracted, or at least pay lip service to the idea, okay, I shouldn't be selfish. If I have a windfall of money, I should be generous, I should care about others. Uh, I mean, that poor rich fool, who's he going to eat, drink, and be merry with if he's just talking to himself? Um... And we all understand that in principle, but it's hard to care about other people. It's hard to show love to other people. It's hard to be steadfast. But Jesus loved us. He was rich to us when we were not rich to him. Right? We were stuck in the mud of our sin, and he died on the cross so that we could be saved. And that, if, if you know it as a believer, is the root of that wealth that enables you to live your life differently in how you think about the future and how you live today, and to pour out riches rather than trying to grab them, right? Rather than trying to store them up and take them for yourself, 
to use them and spend them in ways that are worthwhile. So be, be rich towards God. God has been rich towards you. God has been rich towards you. And so what does that look like practically? Well, one, I want to say, like, I do believe in planning for the future, but it looks differently if you're being rich towards God. First of all, read this out of James. Say, Lord willing. Say, Lord willing. James, in the epistle of James, it says this explicitly. We don't know what the future will bring. So when we make plans, if you're a Christian, when you make plans, you say, I encourage you to say it literally. Lord willing, I will do this. Lord willing, I will go such and such a place. I think, I think of Paul. like He was told by God, you're going to go to Rome and witness for me. He ended up on a boat. He ended up shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked many times. And he ended up shipwrecked on Malta. Right, The boat, there they are. They've made it to Malta, and they're sinking. They don't know what the island is, and the people speak in a strange way. And what does Paul do? Is he like, oh, no, my plans are ruined. The ship is sunk. No, he spends a couple months on Malta witnessing the people. He heals them. Um, a fa- family member of the great man of the island. Um, that's a good title. I want to be great man of the island. <laughs> and uh, before he goes to Rome, right? It's like wherever we say Lord willing and we mean it. When you know you mean it, it's when things don't turn out the way you expect. Right? The man with his barns, he expected to live many years and somehow finally enjoy all the work that he had done and enjoy it through food and drink and merriment. When you say Lord willing, and then in the midst, when you find yourself shipwrecked, you say, Well, this the Lord will that I would be here. And so now I'm going to serve God here. And in these circumstances, I'm going to serve God. What door is he opening for me now? So that, when you plan for the future, when you eat, drink, and be merry, the vision is a few chapters on in Luke. It's the vision of the, the prodigal son, the son who ran off and wasted all his parents' uh, wealth, and then he finally comes back because he's at the end of himself, and he's just asking to be a servant in his father's house. But his father is so overjoyed, like God, when we come back to him. The father's so overjoyed that he says, slay the fatted calf. Right? That's why you save. That's why you raise animals. So that when this prodigal son comes back, you can slay the fatted calf. That's eating and drinking and being merry. The kind that is like deep and abiding and sustaining and joyful. So that's planning for the future. And second, I want to leave you with this. Do it now. So much of what the man, the rich fool is doing is it's always like, I have a good goal in mind. It's not even a good goal, but I have a goal in mind later. And we're good at that. I mean, being a, a, living life responsibly requires a lot of delayed gratification. So to some degree, that makes sense. But we can fall into that trap of like, I need to do this great thing, which requires me to get a great GPA, which means I can't care about a wit about any of you, right? That's one version of it. Right? I don't have time for any of you. Because I gotta hit that 4-0 or 395, or I mean, God bless you if you're able to do that. Um, <laughs> I gotta I gotta hit that so I can get into Harvard Medical School, so I can be a leading surgeon. So I oh, there's so many versions of that that we are running. And along the way, we're stomping all over the people around us. And we're ignoring God. And it is not necessary success, and first of all, it is not success. But even that kind of just secular worldly success money. The crazy thing about I see among Christians relative to long-term financial planning is because they're not living for consumption. They're actually better at saving. Right? You're more likely to not just spend all your money because you're not living for it. You're not living for the abundance of possessions. You can be generous and be giving away so much of your money. You still might save a lot more. That's what I see. And so many of my friends where all they have in life is the stuff they're buying. 
But you can live it. It's not just about the future. It's about today. How can you be rich toward God and others today? What has God given you? What has he blessed you with? What money? What time? What energy? What relationships? What skills? What open doors that you can use for his glory to bless him and to bless others? And if that just seems foreign to you, if you're like, why would I spend my life on others. I'm here at Princeton to learn from me. It really is an indiv- education can be a very individualistic pursuit, and that can very easily turn into a very selfish pursuit. I would encourage you to try following God. See what God in his scripture, in the Bible, has to say. See what, how the people who are following God, how they live their lives. And see if that is attractive to you. See what it looks like on the ground to love other people instead of just ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this part. Oh, Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for the great abundance of material possessions. Indeed, we can say that we are not um, blessed merely with um, shelter and food here at Princeton, but we have so much more, so much of, indeed, the very best possessions the world has to offer. And in many ways, Heavenly Father, that is a blessing, a profound blessing. But we know, Lord God, it is likewise a snare. Much as poverty has many, many challenges with it, we know that riches um, has destroyed many more souls. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we live in such abundance, um, as we see it all around us, Heavenly Father, help us not to be ensnared by it. I think especially coming... um, from poorer backgrounds and seeing real money for the first time, how enticing uh, that was for me as a student, as a freshman. It's like now the riches of the world are achievable, tangible. With the, taking the right job, uh, we feel here that we can get them. And Heavenly Father, on the one hand, insofar as we are blessed with money and talent and opportunity, Lord God, help us to recognize that it is a gift from you. And Lord God, may we use all those things, may we spend them for your kingdom. May we be generous, Lord God, with money, with time, with talents. May we be uh, uh, oriented towards those around us. May we love them dearly, Heavenly Father, when they are that yellow truck in the mud. Help us to be that little blue pickup that pushes them out, that crowd of animals that pushes them out, Heavenly Father. Give us opportunity. It is hard at Princeton because we are so often so focused, or we see our friends so focused on their tasks that they seem to have no need. But Lord God, we know all of us at some point end up in that muck. And Heavenly Father, may that be an opportunity. If that's where we are now, any of us in this room, may it be an opportunity to turn towards you and come and meet us and lift us out and establish us, not loving ourselves and serving ourselves, but loving you and serving you and serving people as you call us to serve people. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.